Hi, everybody. This is Ruzwan Chaudhry, and you are listening to the Phil Finish podcast sponsored by Abijek. And this show shares the expertise in all aspects of injectables, vaccines, and aseptic Phil Finish. This season is offering 10 episodes focused on topics including facility design, regulatory, quality, supply chain management, and ARVR, to name just a few. And today, I'm delighted to be joined by Jason Collins and Sterling Klein of IPS Integrated Project Services. And we'll be talking about the past, the present, and future of advanced aseptic facility design. So, Jason Sterling, I'm delighted to speak to you. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Good to meet you. Very nice to be here today. It's great to meet you, gentlemen. Thank you for joining me for this podcast. My very first question is, though, that before we start talking about aseptic processing, is if you wouldn't mind giving me a quick overview of IPS and also your own backgrounds, if you don't mind. So, Jason, would you like to start? Uh, sure. So uh, again, my name is Jason Collins. I'm the Director of Process Architecture uh, with IPS, um, leading a group of architects focusing really on, on the front-end design work, but also strategic planning and really helping our clients with their business initiatives and solving their problems. And, and sometimes that's through uh, facility design and sometimes that's through uh, higher level analysis. IPS as, as a company is, is very much involved in helping our clients solve their problems and for the most part, helping them make product and bring product to the patients that need them. We are a full service architecture and engineering and construction company, a global company with offices around the world. As mentioned, we focus on everything from front end design, right through detailed design, commissioning, qualification, validation, construction, all services. And we offer those services uh, independently or all together in uh, EBCMV models as well. Brilliant. Thank you, Jason. And Sterling, would you mind giving a quick overview of your own background as well and your role? My role at IPS is Vice President of Design specifically. Currently, I am a subject matter expert in aseptic processing and concentrate on front-end client relations and business development with aseptic projects. Background, I'm an architect, a licensed construction contractor, and a degreed engineer. I've spent 55 years in those disciplines. The last 45 years have been specifically in the pharmaceutical industry. The first 28 years working directly for pharmaceutical companies in various roles, primarily in aseptic manufacturing, and then the last 17 years here at IPS as a consultant. Brilliant. Well, thank you for that. And you are perfectly qualified then to answer my very first question, which is what was the state of aseptic processing when you started in the life science industry way back when? Yeah, it was way back when in 1978 (laughs) uh, that we started with aseptic processing. And that was really at the beginning of the technology throughout the industry. It has evolved over the past two generations. In the very beginning, we were all learning. So typically from an architectural standpoint, we were building facilities that looked like any other facility in the world. We really didn't understand the technology of clean rooms and the technology involved with that, both from an architectural standpoint and buildings, mechanical, the whole building process, but then also from an equipment side. And all of that has evolved initially through the learnings I started out at a pharmaceutical company. We had an assignment to build our first aseptic facility to manufacture freeze-dried product. 
as a young architect, I used traditional technologies that I was used to. So drywall, construction, typical flooring systems, acoustic tiled ceilings, which over the generations we found were totally inappropriate. We found historically mold grows in all the drywall facilities. The acoustic tile particulates and causes issues from a clean room standpoint. And flooring, uh, we'll discuss through this process, but I've never been satisfied with any of the flooring materials, even currently. There's always been issues. But initially, we learned from that first facility. The equipment was rather rudimentary as well. So at that time, some of the equipment companies were then evolving. TL in the United States did quite a bit of development. Most of us in the States used that equipment as, as it was growing and protections started, but with the equipment and the facility. So from, from a material standpoint, over the, the period of time, and I'll say the early generation was from the late 70s into about 1995 through 2000. During that process, we ended up using basically drywall, but adding new coatings to it. So there were vinyl surfaces that were developed that coated the walls and made them seamless. So we, we learned that when, when you had seams, particles would come into the facility. So you, you created the barriers. So basically what we were building were clean rooms that were like inside out swimming pools. Instead of keeping things in, we kept bacteria and viruses out of the facility away from the product. So over time, through different products being introduced, we had small improvements on that. From a classification system, we drew from electronics and from the radioactive industries in terms of clean environments and protection. We utilized a classification system with class 100,000, 10,000, and 100,000 rooms. And through that time period, those two decades, that was primarily what we designed around. And the central clean rooms where the product were formulation and filling were designed as class 100 rooms. It evolved over time as to how do you design that to keep the particle levels down to those limits. Initially, we then put HEPA filters on the end of the ductwork uh, for supplying the air. So what comes into the room, we've now shielded the room, air comes into the room. So we've shielded the air with HEPA filters. Initially, it was maybe 30% of the room. And we, we put that primarily over where the product would be. What we found over time was that was not adequate to get the airflow proper down to the level of the work surfaces. So ultimately, class 100 rooms by the mid-90s were 100% of the room. Initially, we would transfer the material. We actually put different floor colors so that the operators would walk under the HEPA filters on the colored floor to get to the next operation. And so you can see how it evolved from very rudimentary into ultimately we had clean rooms that we fine-tuned the HEPA filters so that in the middle of the room, we got much more air coming down than the HEPA filters at the edge of the room so that the air penetrated further down to the floor, past the work surface, and kept particles away from the product that we were injecting into patients. The problem, though, is, as I mentioned, the one item that came into the room was air. Yep. The other thing was the operators. And over those two decades, we found that the primary contamination to product was from the operators. 
Now we dress them in complete spacesuit type gowning, but particles still came through that. There were breathe holes through the, the gowning materials and that contaminated the product. From a technological standpoint, and the, the FDA started getting involved at that point, is setting up hundreds of SOPs, standard operating procedures, that the operators had to follow to limit the, the contamination of the product. So they had to move very slowly because in reality, it was like the Peanuts cartoon with pig pen. And in reality, there were as many particles hanging around the person as that. So that's where the risk was. With the technologies we had, we got as fine as you could get at that point using the operating procedures and the materials that we had available. At that point, most people resisted any further change because of being risk adverse. And the regulatory agencies were also resistant to change. In the mid-90s, three pharmaceutical companies, prior to that, we were all operating separately and kept all information as a competitive advantage. So there wasn't a lot of sharing. It was more people transferring from one company to the other that shared the information. But Lily, Upjohn, and Merck got together and decided as a group that they were more likely to get regulatory approval if they introduced the technology together. So that became known as the LUMS project, Lily, Upjohn, Merck. And they developed with TL an isolator, similar to what came out of the nuclear industry, where we were protecting the operators from the product. In this industry, we were having isolators that protect the product from the operator, who, as we remember, is the primary source of contamination. So that project was introduced. The weakness was that they claimed it was sterile inside the isolator, not aseptic. They couldn't prove that it was sterile to the FDA. And so that uh, created a barrier over probably the next decade and some resistance to going to that technology. But it was so logical that that's how the industry wanted to proceed. So what they did do then at that point is created something called RADS, Restricted Access Barrier System. So they did put a barrier up there. Technically, it wasn't totally isolated. So the air flowed from one to the other, but it, there was a barrier that kept operators away. Unfortunately, there were various applications to it, and a lot of people opened the door during operation, so the barrier disappeared, and there, there was still a weakness. But it was still better than what we had with no barriers prior to that point. So that was working us up into that year 2000 uh, when isolators started in. The other disadvantage was isolators at that time could be cleaned internally by multiple means. The one that became predominant was vaporized hydrogen peroxide, VHP. One company had the patent on that, and they hadn't developed it to a high degree so that the cycle time for cleaning was 10 hours. That wasn't very viable for most pharmaceutical companies. You had to have a product that you could campaign and fill for a week with very large volumes. There were very few products. Vaccines were one. So the, the three companies I mentioned, they were vaccine companies. Right. And it made economic sense for them to go with the technology. The change came in 2002 when the patent disappeared. And competitors came on the field. And instantly, your previous company that we talked about in the first blog, Scan, came out with a five-hour cycle time. 
all of a sudden the market opened up and it became more viable. And at that time, they claimed the inside of the machine was the same as the rooms historically had been, that it was aseptic and not sterile. And so it gathered regulatory approvals very quickly. That was the early stages. What progressed then in terms of a facility and finish during that generation was in 1995, closed cell modular panels came into being. Right. And they were typically an aluminum cell, closed cell that had a vinyl finish. And the adjacent panels were connected together mechanically but then chemically welded together so that you then, as we remember, got a smooth, uniform, seamless finish that also was connected to the ceilings. So that worked out fine. And that was a progression that still to today is the cutting edge. A lot of details have been improved on those slightly so that it's easier to clean and easier to operate in. But that technology is current and and progressed. So between 95 and 2000, was really the change of the old evolving to where we are at this point. So technically with isolators, with architecture and finishes, it was with the modular wall systems and ceiling systems. Yeah, so well, thank you for taking that sort of quick overview of the history of the development of septic processing. That's been really interesting. Now, Jason, I would ask you, when did you join the industry and where was the focus of septic processing at that time? Yeah, it's actually a perfect segue from where Sterling was ending up because that's pretty much when I got plugged in. So I started in the life science industry in the late 90s, in 97, 98, I believe, and uh, really started to focus more on aseptic facility design in the early 2000s, which was an interesting, challenging, and critical time for aseptic processing. In the early 2000s, we saw some things happening, which really created some chaos, but also gave us some direction. We had some new guidance coming out from the FDA, I believe in 2004. They had their newer guidance for industry for sterile facilities. And shortly before that, I think a year before that, the European Commission also issued their version of sterile guidelines in their Annex 1 documentation. So now all of a sudden you're getting some direction, you're getting some guidance, you're not being told exactly what to do because it's guidance, but now all of a sudden there's something to follow. So the big challenge at that time was you had you know, hundreds or probably thousands of manufacturing facilities around the world that now we're in a state of assessing where are we with this guidance? Are we in compliance? Are we out of compliance? How long are they going to allow us to operate the way we're operating? And I think they were starting to get some feedback from the auditors and inspectors saying, hey, you really need to be moving in this new direction. Uh, We're smarter now. The science is better. We know where we have issues and and you should be starting to address those for, for better products and better patient safety. So a lot of what I was doing at that time did involve assessing existing facilities, understanding how they operated and trying to align them with the new guidance. And there were probably three areas that we focused on the most from from facility design, especially. There was the identification and monitoring of of area classification. So now we had a little more information on the environments that we should be doing different unit operations in, and also how you should transition from one environment to another, one cleanliness level to another. So a lot of assessing was done in existing footprints to say, okay, can we Can we now divide this up to have a better flow of people, materials, protect the products more to get the right transitions through airlocking and gowning procedures 
Is there the space to do that? Or what can we do as a compromise? So a lot of thought put into that. And then there was assessing the technology. So as Sterling was saying, a lot of good work had been done regarding isolators. They weren't perfect. There was a number of installations. So you did have some benchmarking information. And then companies had to decide, do we want to go all in with isolators? Do we want to make it a little better and use restricted access barrier systems, the RABs? Or do we want to stay with a conventional filling line, which has none of that? And I think there was, there was enough information to drive folks to, to say, all right, we need to move away from conventional filling. We do want some sort of barrier between the operators and the product. That just makes too good sense. We should be doing that. And then it was, do we really want to go for it with the isolators? At that time, we did a lot of analysis, operating with an isolator versus RABs and which one's better and how does it affect throughput and how does it affect my flexibility? Those were, were some of the challenges um, to be addressing. And then lastly, from a facility design standpoint, again, Sterling mentioned the clean room panel systems, which were being adopted from electronics facilities and just made a lot of sense. That was the other thing to assess. Should we go down the direction of modular panels? Well, now, okay, I've got to get all the panels from a vendor. I can't just get a carpenter from down the road to fix a hole in the wall when someone drives a fork truck through my wall. <laughs> I don't know if that's going to work for me. Yet you couldn't deny the cleanability and the way the modular systems didn't generate particles like traditional stick-built stuff. So there was that analysis. And then, of course... The only analysis that ever really counts is the cost, right? It's forever evaluating which one's more cost effective, which one can go in quicker and time is money, all of those sorts of things. So I think at those three levels, just the flows of the facility and adhering to guidelines, assessing the technology, and then the fit and finish of the facility, that was a constant evaluation on projects at that time. Right. So where or what does a septic processing look like today? And what are the main challenges that people face within that space? So I can have a go at that. I think this is an exciting time. It's really exciting for a number of reasons. Many of those challenges that I was just talking about have been somewhat mainstream for a number of years. Uh, most people are well aware of the challenges. A lot of folks like Sterling and I have come up with very sound ways of providing global compliance to facilities. So you do a design once, you do it right, and you're good to go for you know, 99% of the market. So some of those things are well-known and well-established. The issue with clean room technology, I almost never have that debate anymore. Everyone knows you're putting in an aseptic suite, you use a modular clean room system. That's the best, that's the state of the industry at this point, and just what you do. Isolators versus RABs, that continues to be a challenge. However, not so much as it was before, but we are finding that it is an important decision and our clients often either have already decided whether they want it or not. And it's often difficult to convince them otherwise because you can make a case if you really want it one way or the other. I mean, you can justify it because they're so close now in total cost. They're so close now in operability. You're really splitting hairs. And what I often say, if a company really wants a RABS-based system because they believe it's the best for their business, 
it's going to be hard to change their minds. But we are seeing definitely, and, and there's been recent surveys uh, by a number of organizations that the shift is really going towards isolated technology. And that's that's pretty exciting because that's the most robust way to protect the products and, and the patients they serve. Right. Sterling, have you got anything to add to that? Yeah, along the line with the isolators, I'm seeing the same as Jason. Had conversation with the FDA a week ago, and they said they're very excited because they prefer isolator technology, and they're excited that they're rarely seeing grabs at this point. From their view, quality is the most important, and there's not a lot of arguments opposed to that. There's some operational issues once in a while. There's some processes like ophthalmic bottles, it's very difficult to get uh, bottles into an isolator. So from that standpoint, there's a lot of logic of, of going to a RABS because that is the best solution in that case. But predominantly with vials and syringes at this point, technology is well established. And it took about 20 years to get everybody to accept that. Large pharma initially, because uh, they were the ones, it's all economics, they were willing to take the gamble. From an operating standpoint, some of the others were not because they had to retrain all their operators. So remember, we were talking about the SOPs. Folks knew how to do it. There was risk to them to change the technology. So big pharma typically had gone to that point. Contract manufacturers are now using the isolator technologies, primarily driven by their customers because big pharma will use CMOs as backup. And they're looking for them to have the same technology. And especially if multiple clients are in that facility and they have competitors in the facility that they don't know what they're making and their products next on the machine, they want to make sure there's the least risk. And from that perspective, that's what the isolator technology. And now from an economic standpoint, it's gotten to the point where generics are now using it because it got to the point generics costs are the most important to them from an operating standpoint because their sales are at a much tighter margin. Sure. And so the economics is now there. The isolator machine costs a little bit more, but the savings in the facility going to a lower class so that isolators can be done in an ISO 8 grade C environment where the RABS takes a grade B environment. You got to wear the spacesuits. The economics of that operating cost has driven people to isolator technology. So as Jason said, the industry has really matured at this point and the, the drive to get to this point is fairly well achieved. Yeah, I almost feel like in some aspects, we did too good of a job hypersensitizing <laughs> ourselves to all of the risks. We've gotten to a point of belts and suspenders and straps in our, our approach to facility design, there was so much that was known about open processing and the risks that we really strove towards um, going in a direction to mitigate risk as much as possible. And especially as the isolators were being developed, you always kind of wanted to have a bit of a backup plan and a bit of, again, the belts and suspenders. We implemented a lot of very conservative facility designs with full unidirectional flows and sometimes separate flows out for waste and, and going above and beyond from a segregation standpoint. And now that we have really good technology and closed systems and, and really good transfer systems, we're struggling as an industry to accept the science and say it's going to be okay. And we don't need to apply all the other measures on top of that, which have quite frankly been driving facility costs up astronomically. So we're at a point where finally the regulators are saying, 
have a risk-based approach and make decisions based on that. You don't have to go crazy as long as you can prove to us that you're safe. Getting folks to kind of back off from the, the real extremes I've seen as a challenge now. It's a more a challenge with big pharmaceutical companies than it is with the small ones, because where the cost is driven, they'll do smart risk and are willing to accept that. So a lot of startups that we're dealing with at this point are really the cutting edge and where the industry should be. And it's not the, the historic big pharma that had driven the industry over the past three, four decades. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting from that standpoint and fun working with the startups. Yeah, totally agree. Well, that leads nicely, actually, to my next question, which is, what does the future hold? What does the future look like then going forward? Well, I think, as I mentioned, the, the technology is pretty sound, but we're, we're always pushing the boundaries from that standpoint. And it was a bit of a segue into what I was saying previously that I'm hoping we can get into more of a situation where the designs and the facility requirements are more cost-effective and that's certainly where, where we need to be going. We will see more advanced technology in regards to robotics and how robots are used. Right now, it's how far should that be taken and is it really appropriate in certain areas? I think we'll continue to see that to help, again, keep people out of the process by having things more automated. And it's just going to continue to make things safer. From a design standpoint and facility standpoint, our challenge is how do we go faster? It's something that we've been working through for, for decades as well with different types of facility delivery options, whether modular, whether stick built, that sort of thing. And that's continuing to be addressed on a case-by-case -case basis. I think a lot of times clients come to us with a preconception of what they want. They want a modular building, one that's completely modular, constructed off-site and erected on-site. And they, they just want it because they feel that's what's right for them. But I think what we bring to the table is helping folks assess what that right delivery is for them. Because sometimes it's modular and sometimes it's not. Modular systems are great if you have your process well-defined and you can rush the design process because it's already established because the whole thing is about going fast and if you still need to spend a lot of time developing your process then there's really no benefit in doing that because you could be building your facility in a fast track way in parallel so those are the things you want to assess modular has a higher premium so you're paying more money but you're trying to get that speed so Again, you have to align that with what you know about your project and how fast can you really go. And I know Sterling has some, some other thoughts yeah. about that as well, right? I do. We're now in a, going in the future, a worldwide economy and focus. And especially uh, with COVID, we've seen that. How do you get drugs to the rest of the world? So fortunately, there are a number of benevolent organizations that are now getting involved. And where the poor third world countries cannot afford drugs, they're being supported by the super wealthy folks like Gates Foundation and some of the others are doing phenomenal jobs along those lines. And so they're looking at a number of these companies or organizations are looking at modular as well. So how can they come up with a design that they can put in many localities, but have a technology that in a third world country, they, these facilities can be built. So the clean room technology is fairly sophisticated. So how do you do that? 
So we've been looking at uh, modular designs that they don't have to repeat and redesign a building every time. And we have large pharma company looking at that as well. So how can they do a similar design and where in the past everybody thought they were unique and their machine had to be unique and their products were unique? Well, now they're all with biologics, they're getting very much the same with just differences in, in terms of their potency level, BSL-2 or 3. But the facilities can be very similar. And Jason and I and others in the industry have come up with designs that are very similar for both technologies now, especially with isolation and containment. The facility can be very similar with just some slight modifications to handle the, the complexities there. So here, with a very similar design, you can put buildings all over the world. We've come up with systems where there'll be a superstructure that can be built that the localities uh, have built warehouses similar to that. But what we'll do is put a substructure that can be containerized, which was a really good idea about two years ago until we had the container issue. But I think that we'll get through that where in a developed country, you can put the components together, keep them standardized, your ductwork's the same size, We've come up with a Verendale truss subsystem that's a possibility that all the materials can fit within the truss and that fits within the building at a standard module. So we've looked at all the different components within, and Jason and I looked at this totally separately and then came together and the module we came up with was exactly the same dimension. So it's, it's, there's some logic to it with the, the equipment and we can pretty much fit every manufacturer's equipment within this module with all different technologies, whether it's syringe or vial or blow fill seal or uh, lyophilized components or bottles. It all works within this standard system. So if we can do that, then all of a sudden you can stockpile the substructures and the pieces and get them out. It speeds up the design time because you can take components. For example, component prep. It's either one parts component washer or two and one autoclave or two. And it's the same in any facility. So the dimensions and throughput are very much the same. You could have the same design and have that set as a tool in your toolbox and the FDA, we've done some trainings with them. They've accepted the design. So your risk from approval once your building's done is limited as much as you can do it, the design the exact same way. And as Jason said, we've spent a lot of time doing compliance with all the regulations at the most cost-effective version. And that's where I think the industry should be going. I think from an equipment standpoint, we should be using similar pieces and not have every equipment line customized because that is on the critical path. The buildings are not on the critical path at this point. It's always the equipment. If we can get it standardized enough so that the project doesn't start when you request a quotation on some custom piece of equipment, if they stockpile it, and, and as an example, several manufacturers at a clinical scale have come up with a standard modular isolated unit, and they have cut the delivery time in less than half using that. So I see that would be the intention going forward. Whether we can get there or not, that'll be up to the, the yeah. suppliers. What I think is important is whenever you talk about facility of the future, which is a common topic these days, the important thing is not to have preconceptions of what that is. I think what we've learned in the last five or six years doing facility of the future designs for folks is that everybody has their own opinion on what the facility of the future is. 
And so what we've come up with is what I would refer to as a very robust design process for taking our clients through that process and figuring out what it means to them through a series of discussions and interviews in establishing design philosophies. And what's important is not to think of the solutions just yet, but what do you want the facility to do for you? Flexibility for one person could be being able to erect a facility, take it down next year, ship it across the world and re-erect it someplace else. Or for another person, it could be, well, I want to be able to be doing one product for the next five years and then wipe the slate clean and do something totally different in this space. By spending a little bit of time in the beginning to figure out what's right for you and establishing those guidelines and design philosophies that can tremendously accelerate the design process from then out and the construction process because you won't be second guessing yourself the whole way. Brilliant. Well, look, gentlemen, we could talk about this, I'm sure, for a lot longer than the time we've got left. So all that I've got to say is thank you very much for talking to me. It's been a really fascinating discussion. I've learned so much listening to both of you today. So thank you for sharing your experiences and your knowledge with me today. So if people would like to know more about this, where can they get more information about IPS, for example, Jason? Sure. I mean, anyone can find more information about either myself or Sterling or our company, IPS as a whole, at our website at IPSDB.com. And you can also find us through LinkedIn and um, any of the usual social media venues from that standpoint. I'd like to say it's been, it's been a pleasure talking with you, Rizwan, and, and it's always a joy speaking with Sterling and, and sharing our experiences. Thank you both. Thank you. And there you go, viewers. So uh, I hope you found that useful. To learn more, check out the Phil Finish podcast. Go to our website, which is www.philfinishpodcast.com to check out all the podcasts we've got there and the future podcasts will be coming up. And if you've got any topics you think we should be covering in the podcast, feel free to go to the website and put it there as well. So all that stuff we say, thank you very much, gentlemen, once again, for sharing your knowledge and your experiences. And thank you, viewers, or I say viewers, but listeners, for listening to me. And until next time, goodbye. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. And now a brief word from this episode's sponsor. Appyject is helping companies fill finish their injectable medicines and vaccines in scalable pre-filled delivery devices using blow-fill-seal aseptic technology. To learn more or explore how Appyject can help your company solve its injectable drug delivery challenges, visit www.appyject.com. Copyright Appyject. All rights reserved. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in the podcast belong solely to the speaker and do not necessarily reflect the views, thoughts, and opinions of the host, sponsor, speaker's employer, or any other organization or individual mentioned.